morning. Thank you, Aiden, for that reading. This morning, I want to welcome those of you that are visiting with us. We're certainly pleased by your presence and hope that the service has been beneficial and edifying for you so far. Also want to pray that my portion of the service would be edifying and uplifting to you in some way this morning as we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we've looked through the book of 1 Corinthians and we look at our major themes throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, there was a lot of different problems that Paul was dealing with in his letter to the church at Corinth. Corinth's major influence in Corinth at that time was a lot of Greek, Greek philosophy, a lot of idolatry, a lot of those things going on, and it was influencing the church at Corinth. And Paul has to deal with a numerous subjects, most of which were letters or questions that had been written to him that he needed to deal with. And he deals a lot with division there at the early on. He deals with some depravities there, a lot of personal problems he looks into, worship problems, spiritual gifts. And we talked about how that chapter 13, how love should permeate both going forward and backward across all of these things. And then he deals with some issues uh, regarding the assemblies and problems they had with the assemblies at the tail end of chapter 14. Now, I'm skipping that intentionally. We're going to circle back to that later on. But we get to chapter 15 and we deal with problems concerning the resurrection. Apparently, there had been some influence in Corinth that they didn't believe in a resurrection. And this is the bedrock of the gospel. And Paul needs to deal with this subject, and it's obvious as he, as you look at 1 Corinthians as he's opened in chapter 1, and he closes in chapter 15 and chapter 16, he deals with some foundational truths that need to be dealt with that permeate throughout all the church and even then until today. In their divisions, you know, as Paul talked about there early on, they were following different people. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And they were following after different people, and he was trying to get them to focus their energy back to the cross, back to Christ. And as he dealt with all of the problems that he is, he closes it out in, a very, in another very fundamental, foundational truth that they needed to understand. He talks about the gospel, and he says, I would remind you of this gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and which you are being saved. You have to hold fast, excuse me, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. One of the truths here that Paul talks about that's very important as far as the gospel and them understanding was the fact that this was a gospel that they had received. This is where he's saying you stand. This is where he is saying you're being saved. I want you to appreciate what Paul's saying here. This isn't just something that that was delivered and goes by the wayside. This has to do with your past, your present, and your future. The entirety of your salvation, this gospel, this bedrock on which the gospel stands, which is the resurrection, it has to do with everything that you are. Past, present, and future. In the past... Before you had received it, you obviously were still dead in your sins. It is now in which you stand. It is now what is operating to give you salvation. It is what you 
are saved in. But he, there's a caveat there. He says if you hold fast or if you hold firmly, unless you believed in vain, unless there was some area in your life that you just said, you know, I, I really don't believe this, but I'm going to do what everybody else is doing. And you could see how in Corinth that could happen. You could see how when Paul came and he delivered the gospel to them, and there were many people being obedient to the gospel with all the different philosophies and all the different idolatry that was going on, how people would be what you would call bandwagon Christians. They just kind of jumped into this new thing. And Paul is getting them to understand, to verify their faith, that it's something that you didn't do in vain, that something wasn't meaningless, that it was important to you, that it is the only thing that you can be saved. What Paul is going to drive at, and the point here is that there is no gospel, there is no salvation apart from a resurrected Christ. And that's very important as he begins to talk about the different mechanics of the resurrection. And we're going to look at this today in, in two different parts. We're going to look at what all of this means for Paul. What Paul, or what all of this means for the church at Corinth. And then later on, next time I talk, we'll kind of look at the later half of the latter half of it and looking at the mechanics of the resurrection, if you will. In 1 Corinthians 15, we need to understand what Paul is talking about as far as the gospel. You know, we've looked at this passage quite a bit, and we maybe a little bit out of context, and that's fine. When we talk about and we define the gospel, that this is what the gospel is. And I think it's very important that we understand as Paul says, he defines it very succinctly for us. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That, in a nutshell, is what the Gospel is. If you look at the word Gospel, it simply means good tidings or good news. This was the good news. And we look at this passage a lot of times and we look at it for the understanding of what it is when we talk about being obedient to the gospel. When you look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 17, he says, But God be thanked. You were once slaves of sin, but from the heart you obeyed that form of doctrine. What is the form? A pattern of doctrine. And you became slaves of righteousness. The, poor, the form or the pattern that he's talking about here is the very same thing he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That Christ died, was buried, and was raised again. And this is foundational to the gospel. Without this, the gospel fails. Without this, we're no different than anybody else. We're no different than any other religion if you think about it. What other religion God manifests Himself on earth and has Himself murdered by the very creation which He's created and is resurrected again? Without the resurrection, everything else falls. 
All of the things that Paul has talked about from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, everything falls. The resurrection is the linchpin to it all. If Christ didn't raise, then we're wasting our time. I'm going to be quite frank and honest with you and be that subtle. Paul says the same thing later on. We're just wasting our time. As Paul talks about this gospel, which is very important not only to him, but to those in which he delivered it to. Now, if you do a lot of reading on this, what some suggest is that Paul is just reciting a creed that was established a few years after Christ's death. It was a creed that was common for them to say what was delivered for Christ, He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And you can do all this, go down all these rabbit trails and try to figure out was it really a creed or was this what was delivered to Him whenever He was confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus. Really, the point is, is that the resurrection happened. And here's the evidences that Paul gives for that resurrection. Now, you and I could go through and you can look historically at a number of historical references to the resurrection. You can see, find a number of historical references to the crucifixion of Christ. But in the context of what Paul is saying and what he's trying to get the church at Corinth to see, he says here are some very clear-cut evidences, three of them that Paul gives to them. First and foremost, he says the Scriptures, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. If you look in the Old Testament and you look at the number of what some 300-some-odd prophecies concerning Christ, there are many concerning His resurrection. If you look at Christ teaching Himself and what He talked about, there are many prophecies that He gave Himself concerning the resurrection. And you can go to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, that entire chapter deals with the, the Christ coming to earth, that He would be rejected, that He would be resurrected. You can go to Psalms chapter 22. You can go to Psalms chapter 16, in which the psalmist says there that he thanks the God that He's not in hell, and that He is resurrected. In Hosea chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, he has, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. In the original context of what Hosea is talking about, the prophet looks forward to a restored life for Israel that comes after God punishes His people for their transgressions. But the reality in this prophecy is that the Lord's wrath, wrath is effectually on their sin and that there is nothing that they can do to recover from that unless a Messiah comes and delivers them from their sin. When you think about stories like Jonah, 
How many days was Jonah in the belly of the whale? He was in the three days. Christ references that himself. So the evidence is that there is all of these numerous texts in the Scriptures that point to a resurrected Messiah. And Paul says, we have the resurrected Messiah. That He did exactly what He was supposed to according to the Scriptures. Which points to the next piece of evidence. Not only do we have the resurrected Messiah, but that there were eyewitnesses that saw Him. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. This is one of the greatest points of evidence that you could possibly have. In the context of 1 Corinthians, this letter was written in about 55 A.D. It's been about 25 years since Christ was crucified. Paul says some of those, many of those are still alive. They saw Christ after He was resurrected. One of the eyewitnesses there that's very interesting though to me is James. How James is singled out. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Why would that be interesting? You know, Jesus' own family didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And John chapter 7 says, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. What a confirmation it would be for James, who was a brother of Christ, for Christ to come back and show himself to his brother. That would remove any question as to who Jesus was. James would go on to be a faithful apostle and disciple of Jesus. But not only that, but think about even more so than that. Think about before Christ was crucified, and the disciples came to him not long before he's crucified, and they say, hey, tell us about the kingdom. Tell us about when this kingdom's going to come. And they're thinking about a physical kingdom. And the number of questions that Christ repeatedly had to deal with and them not having complete understanding. I want you to think about Martha as her son Lazarus, not her son, her brother Lazarus, when he died. When he died and Christ comes and everybody's mourning and Christ says he'll live again. And she makes a reference that says, I know he'll live in the resurrection. What does Christ say there? He said, I am 
the resurrection. I am the resurrection. One of the greatest I am statements that could ever have been made was I am the resurrection. Because what did that do? It made it personal. This wasn't something that was just off on the side. This was something that was personal. It was personal to Christ, and it should be personal to us. And that's why we're talking about how living a resurrection-driven life. Something that's very personal. I can guarantee you, all of these eyewitnesses that saw Jesus after He was resurrected, it became something that was extremely personal to them. It became something that they established their faith in, and it became extremely personal. The gospel became extremely personal. What greater evidence do you need than to see the man that you knew die and come back? But he goes on. He says, here's your third point of evidence. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Paul says, here's another piece of evidence for a resurrected Christ, me. I want you to really consider the life that Paul had prior to being confronted by Christ. Paul was elevated in the group of Pharisees. He had a certain stature in that community. He had power in that community. He had the ability to make things happen. He gave it all up to live a life of persecution for a lie. If you've ever read in 2 Corinthians, Paul's laundry list of persecutions that he's gone through. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was without food. He was cold. He gave all of that up for what? For a lie? In Acts chapter 9, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Have you ever looked up what that word still breathing threats and murder. If you look at that word, it's not just simply he's talking these things. It's simply, it means a lot more. That Paul was seething. 
at the very core of who he was, he was going to stomp out Christianity. That if he could do it in the entirety of himself, he would stomp it out by himself. Seething anger. Wanting to see them bound in jail, imprisoned, and killed. This same man is now one of the greatest proponents of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no greater evidence than in the change of someone's life. Paul makes a statement in here that I found very fascinating. He says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Not only did I find this fascinating, but I found it extremely convicting. That as Paul is going through who he was and what he was, he says his grace toward me was not empty. It was not worthless. If there's kind of a point of personal application in here, it's this statement that Paul makes. When you look at your life, wouldn't it be great to have the strength and understanding, to, to the confidence to say that the grace of God was not wasted on me? Which brings the next question is, is the grace of God being wasted on me? In light of Paul's life, he could look at it and say, I gave everything. I turned over everything for this gospel message, for this truth, for this resurrected Christ. The grace of God wasn't wasted on me. And then I look at my personal life, and I sometimes wonder, the light afflictions that I have in this life, the things that I find a little bit discomforting, the schedule and time that is being consumed by different things in this life. And it's very convicting to, for me to look at that and go, man, I've got it easy compared to Paul. Is the grace of God being wasted on me? Am I using it for what it was intended to be? Am I using it in its entirety? Or am I in this life of all of the blessings that I have? And I'm not using it to its full potential. What a great confident statement that Paul makes there. That God's grace wasn't being wasted on him. With that being said, as Paul talks, has given them and defined to them what the gospel is, the resurrected evidences that are sitting out there, he then talks about six very important implications. And what if? What if Christ was not resurrected? 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So, Paul simply puts it right out there. Obviously, the implication in this first part is that there were some that were saying that there was no resurrection. You could see how they had been influenced by Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy said that your soul, that there was a spiritual part of things afterwards, but there would be no resurrection. And this was kind of a thing in Greek philosophy that came along after Christ died because they were having to deal with a resurrected Christ. So their influence upon the church early on was pretty strong. And obviously it was fairly strong in Corinth that Paul has to deal with this subject. If we've proclaimed that Christ was resurrected, based on all the information that we gave you, based on the gospel truths, how then can you say there is no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So the first important implication of this is, if, is that Christ is not raised. It all crumbles from there. If Christ isn't raised, then there really is no gospel message. There really is no good news. What's the point of all of it? And if there's no gospel, then essentially we've been misrepresenting God and we're liars. I want you to think about what Paul is doing here Not just from his own perspective, but all of those that were proclaiming the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've only got two parts of the gospel. You're missing a third part. And you had a lot of people putting their lives on the line for a lie. So here's the implication. Christ isn't raised. There's no gospel message, and you've been listening to liars. At this point, everything that Paul has worked with the church in Corinth, and I want you to appreciate that this is technically the second letter that was written to the church at Corinth. The second letter that we call 2 Corinthians is actually the third letter. Three letters written to the church. The number of problems that they've had the number of people that Paul sent to Corinth to help them out. All of it's for what? The implications get worse as he goes on. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep 
in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. If Christ hasn't been raised, ultimately you're still in your sins. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no salvation plan. The salvation plan was built on these three gospel facts. If one of them falls, they all fall. And if they all fall, you're still in your sin. Then what's the point? Because at the end of all of it is death. There is no hope. There is nothing after this life. All of your hope is in this world and this world alone. And I understand that Paul talking to the church at Corinth and talking to the church in Amarillo, Texas, 2,000 years apart, is a little bit different. The persecution and affliction that they were suffering in Corinth at that time was vastly different than what we have now. And it's very easy to get caught up and think about the things of this life for us and how good we actually have it. But in context of who Paul is talking to, you've got to appreciate what he's talking about. Their future beyond death, their hope beyond death, was the leveling of the affliction and suffering that they were going through in life. And I know that's hard for us to wrap our heads around sometime. But I believe that we can appreciate it. I know that we are really blessed in this world, but we can appreciate the hope on the other side of the grave. If nothing through no, no other understanding than the pain that we have to deal with in losing others, the physical suffering you have to go through just by getting older, the day-to-day worry that we have, the day-to-day concerns that we have, wouldn't it be nice to be relieved of all of that? Knowing that on the other side of death, there's no worries. There is no concern with those things. That death in this world is not the end. And Paul's saying the implication is this. This is all you've got. However many years it is, if you make it 70 years, 75 years, that's all you've got. And it's done. Why are you wasting your time And a fruitless faith. That's what it means. And lastly, that we're to be pitied above all people. 
If Christ is not resurrected, everything that we believe, everything that we follow after, all of the things that we do with one another, the worship, it's a waste of time. There is no point. There is no hope. There is no future. And people who look upon us should look upon us with absolute pity. What a sad state it is if there is no resurrection. I want you to pause for a moment and just think about this. These six implications in your own personal life. What is the lifeblood that flows through our relationship today? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wouldn't know Jason and Becca, Justin and Tara, Noah, Jana. I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't know a thing about you. I wouldn't spend time with you. I wouldn't carve out time to have you in my home. I wouldn't carve out time in my prayer life. I wouldn't have a prayer life. What connects all of us? And if that's not there, then this is an absolute waste of our time. But I want you to appreciate what Paul has done here. As Paul has set this up, in our next lesson we will talk about the mechanics of the resurrection and what it all means. But I want you to appreciate exactly what Paul has done. In the first few verses of this chapter, first 11 verses of this chapter, Paul tells us what the resurrection is. The resurrection is the foundation of our faith. It is the focal point of our fervency. It is the focus of our faithfulness. It is the fundamental fact of our fellowship with God. It is the footing of our relationship with Christ. And it is the fuel for our zeal. I did not realize I had so many F's going on in this thing. So I decided to make them all F's as I went forward. So Paul sets this up in the first few verses of this chapter This is what the resurrection is. And then he says, this is what it's like if there is no resurrection. The facts of the gospel would be false. The facts of the gospel, or our faith would be flimsy. Our fear would definitely be flourishing. Our fear of death in this world. Our future, there would be no hope. It would be foggy. Our faithfulness would fail. Futility would characterize Not only our deaths, but also our lives. And that at the end of all of it, we above all people would be most miserable. 
That is the summation of the first 19 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What Paul is driving home is that without the resurrection, the gospel in its entirety fails. He's defined it. He's backed it up with evidences. He looks at his own personal life. And he's trying to get them to understand all of the things that I have taught you, all of the things that I have written to you about, it all needs to point to one simple thing. That is the resurrection-driven life. The life that points to the resurrection. Not only the resurrection of Christ, but the hope of your resurrection. That's the life we're supposed to be aiming towards. And Paul's trying to get them to understand that. He's trying to get us to understand all of the things in this world, they don't matter, they're futile, apart from the resurrection of Christ. The question then becomes, what is the motivation and what drives your life? Is it what goes on in the next day? Is it what goes on in your work? Is it how much money you can make? Is it just about your family and your children? Or is a resurrection with your Savior the motivation? As we close this morning, I want to go back to Paul's statement and our question about the grace of God. Where is it in your life? Is it a motivator? Is the grace of God being wasted on you? Are you spinning your wheels in futility? And rejecting the gospel? Not considering what he did for you in his death, burial, and resurrection. But most importantly, have you been obedient? As Paul talked about that form of doctrine. Earlier on in Romans chapter 6, when he pointed to that form of doctrine that they obeyed to, he talked about them being baptized. And that pattern that they went through in baptism was the pattern or the form of doctrine in Christ being dead, buried, and raised again. Have you obeyed that form of doctrine? Have you transitioned your life from a slave of sin to a slave of righteousness. Secondly, we can look at our lives sometimes and be truthful and honest and say that maybe the grace of God's being wasted on me a little bit. Maybe I haven't lived up to my responsibility. Maybe I don't have a resurrection-driven life at this point. Maybe I've allowed the world to creep in and take over in some aspects of my life. We're human. Those things happen. 
But by the grace of God, you can always get right. We can help you. We can pray for you. We can give you encouragement. If you would find yourself in either one of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.